Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host, Sam Boyassi, Head of Content Marketing at EMG Health. And today I'm joined by Ian Dorian, President of Communications for Europe at Sinius Health. Thanks for joining us, Ian. How are you doing today? Not too bad at all, thank you. It's a bit of a rainy day, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to staying indoors actually today. I'm with you on that. So for those of you who don't know Ian, he began his career in healthcare at the Hartlepool branch of Boots the Chemist in 1985 as a Saturday sales assistant. He went on to read pharmacology at what was then the Sunderland Polytechnic and is now, as we noted earlier, the president of Communications Europe at Sinius Health. In the years in between that, he held roles that spanned disciplines and industries, where he spent 10 years, first of all, in the pharmaceutical industry, working in an eclectic mix of sales, medical affairs and marketing roles for companies such as Bayer and Hoek's Marion Roussel. He then jumped across to the agency world 20 years ago, with notable roles including managing director of Ogilvy Common Health Worldwide and a CEO of DDB Remedy. He joined Sinius Health in May of this year in the midst of a global pandemic, and I'm excited to talk to him about his background in healthcare and how pharma companies should be communicating in a COVID-19 world. Ian, we've heard there very briefly about the history of your career within the healthcare industry, which really has been diverse. And I'm really, really keen to know then, to start off with, was there a particular person or event that inspired you to pursue a degree in pharmacology, which then allowed you to go on this journey? That's an in- interesting question. Um, I think it would probably be best if I get just give you a little bit of context about uh, about me and where I'm from. I'm, I'm from the northeast of England, from a town called Hartlepool. And it wasn't exactly a wash with, with jobs. Uh, the shipbuilding industry had you know faded away to the point that we were left with the biggest employer in the town. Uh, it was actually a cream cake factory. So I was really keen to make sure any studies I did would actually you know, lead to a job. I was always fascinated by chemistry as a kid. And as I you know, mentioned earlier, I, I you know, managed to get a Saturday job at Boots the Chemist. And that was probably down to the fact that my mum actually you know, worked there. And pharmacy really sparked an interest in me as chemistry with purpose. On the downside, I wasn't exactly the most academically gifted person in the world. So pharmacy was always going to be a real stretch for me. But you know what? It was a, it was a goal. I think the ultimate determinants were the fact that my uh, A-level results were a bit on the uh, lacklustre side, I think is the polite way of putting it. And that definitely limited my, my choices. But at the same time, we also had original pack dispensing came in. And that, I really felt, fundamentally changed the nature of pharmacy. And that helped cement my decision to do pharmacology. And with the benefit of hindsight, I, I think it was definitely the right choice because it opened a lot of doors and it gave me a solid scientific foundation that I could actually build on as my career progressed over the, well, what was the next 30 years? I love that. And and specifically looking at your background, one thing that I always find interesting whenever I look at people's career span is the transitions. Um, And I always have to ask about that when I see it. And and in your case, it's a transition from pharma to agency later on. So what was it that spurred the transition into the agency world for you? 
Uh, that's a really an interesting question. Um, I think really what had happened was that you know I I, I joined the industry you know initially as a, a sales rep and made a rather crazy move of moving into the the medical affairs group uh, at Bayer, and I kind of reached a point where I really didn't think I would was going to get an awful lot further, and I think it was. One of those situations where my my ambition was being tempered by a lack of opportunities. Now that changed, and I'm uh, eternally grateful to uh, a lady called Sue Duncombe at Bayer, who probably gave me the single biggest break in my entire career. And look, looking back, she really changed my entire direction of travel. Mm. She hired me as a, a marketing assistant in in anti infectives. Now, this was probably a, quite a big risk for her at the time, as I was moving from the medical affairs group, which at that point was actually more popularly known internally in the commercial circles as the Department of Sales Prevention. Yeah. Now, I, I bridged the two functions pretty, you know, pretty effectively, and I think we actually benefited commercially at that point. My mindset was always, okay, maybe we can't do that, but perhaps we could do this instead, and I, and I think that that helped. And over time, I started to learn the basics of brand management from a really solid team. And eventually, I started to work with, with service agencies. Now, these were an interesting you know, bunch of people. You, there would be um, you know, those who were more smartly dressed, and there were those at the time who were in uh, black roll neck sweaters, and I assumed they were the, were the, the creatives. And, you know, you got your, your stereotypes about what it was like at the time, but it was probably accurate. And most of the real work seemed to be done in the pub, actually, after the formal meetings had ended. And that was certainly an attraction at the, the, the time. Um, another big job in pharma came up at that point, which was at Hawkes Marion Roussel, and that was as a pure play marketer in anti-infectives and respiratory medicine. And I went for it, and I was actually a little taken aback when I actually got the job. And the team I got to work with was amazing, and I still look back on that time with a great deal of fondness. Uh, my bosses were a chap called Mark Barlow and Hugh Tippett, and they taught me the basics of people management. And I had this little team uh, that was, you know, small but perfectly formed, and it was Ian Trudgeon, Ian Willoughby, and Paula Tully. So, yeah, you did have three Ians <laughs> and a Paula in, in, in one team. And they pretty much taught me the, re the rest. And we all trusted each other implicitly and always had each other's back. And we, we had a really simple contract with each other as a team. We should always make each other, you know, look, look good. And Ian Trudgeon actually taught me that on day two, and he was one, you know, my first proper line report. Mm -hmm. And it's really stayed with me throughout my career as a really good piece of advice for anyone in, in people management. Now, eventually, Hooks, Marion, Roussel merged with Rompelant Rora to make Aventis, which went on to be Sanofi. Mm -hmm. And that meant I would actually need to move to Kent if I wanted to stay with a company. And I was living in rural o Oxfordshire, and I really didn't fancy that too much so I started to look at other options and I'd, as I mentioned earlier I'd been really attracted to the the the, the agency world and I decided to just take a leap and I joined a small independent agency called Herman Beasley Advertising which was quickly swallowed up by Cordian which was swallowed up by WBB and really that was that as they say that was me in the agency world and I've really not looked back 
That is brilliant. And I, I just loved everything about what you just said from the beginning of uh, transitioning from medical affairs to marketing and the challenges around that, which is something that we often talk about even today now. I think there are still some silos in those departments working in silos together and, and collaborating between them. And then the sales departments is just so vital. And, and all the way to, you know, the opportunities that you've had, the people that you've worked with to be in the position that you are now. Um, it's just it's just great. So thank you so much for talking us through that. And with Sinia's Health, I, I want to take a moment to talk about the values. Um, and to our listeners who may not know this, Sinia's Health has got three core values, which are to challenge the status quo, collaborate to deliver solutions, and to be passionate about changing lives. Which one of those, Ian, is most important to you right now and why? Okay, uh, this one's actually a fairly straightforward question for me because it's really about challenging the the, the status quo. Mm. Um, you know, Sineos is a, is, a, is a large organization. I mean, you could almost look at it as a pharma company with, without a, a drug. We've got somewhere in the region of about 25,000 people. And when you get into large organizations like that, you're constantly balancing short and long-term objectives by having a clear direction of travel you never lose sight of. And that's very clear within, within the organization. But there's an unfortunate consequence of this. And that is that, as we're all aware, short-term you know, objectives are always invariably financial. Mm. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we're a people business. And if we don't put them first, we'll never be as successful in the long term uh, as, as we could be. So right now, I know it's still relatively early doors for me with, with the organization, but I'm actively challenging the status quo by setting short-term you know, people goals for leadership, covering everything from diversity, you know, equity and inclusivity initiatives to formal staff training and development programs to make sure that we really keep our staff engaged in the business in the long term. I really want people to have a future with the organization and for them to think about themselves as recognized as more than a number on a balance sheet. As I say, we're a people business, that's all that matters. And you know, related to that, I mean, I mentioned earlier about diversity, you know, equity and inclusivity stuff. Social mobility has always been a, a really big thing for me. And you know, if you look at my my family, I was you know the first person to you know go into into higher education, and and I, and I got a lot of breaks. And my parents, you know, could could actually you know su support me to be able to do that. But I recognise very few people are, are quite as lucky as me, mm. which means that we're really missing out on a lot of phenomenal talent, just because they didn't go to the right school, didn't have the right connections, or couldn't afford to go into higher education. And that's got worse, you know, over, over, the, over the last few years. That being said, talking about, you know, higher education, that's not probably the best marker for me about how successful somebody's going to be in the work environment. It's more about how well they can actually communicate and, and, and get a point across. And this skill isn't something you're, you're born with. Communications for me, I started to learn about it when I first went out as a you know rookie sales representative, and learned how to be able to talk and, and you know get a get a point across. And you know, I work in a communications group, a really good one, and I'm pretty sure that we can actually use our skills to good effect by making you know 
more people grow and cross social boundaries by finding their voices. And we're looking at some initiatives which go outside the immediate org- org- organization and start to branch out into you know, society at large. And that's a kind of a bit of a passion project for me right now. And I hope to motivate others to invest a fair bit of time into it because if we can help people you know, find their voices, you know what? Then they can get, you know, get the better, you know, the better jobs, move on, and then we start to cross the social boundaries. And well, I hope it comes across the way that it's it's meant to. That it, it it's something which bothers me, and I want to do something about it. That's a brilliant mindset to have, and I think we need to hear more about it, especially from this industry. Um, so so it's great to hear that that's a passion of yours and that you are doing something about it and, and, and absolutely brilliant. So thanks for sharing that with us again, Ian. About kind of the situation that we find ourselves in right now, uh, which I'm sure people are to a certain extent maybe tired of hearing about, but but it's, it's the pandemic, COVID-19. It's, it's what we're living in right now. And I want to talk about fake news uh, in particular, because that has been rife since the onset of the pandemic. And, and in any situation, fake news are dangerous. But, but when we're mixing fake news with health in particular, it's specifically dangerous and potentially harmful. So, Ian, what do you think are the most common miscommunications taking place? And, and what can pharma companies do to combat the spread of incorrect information during this time? Uh, I think the most obvious thing right now is almost certainly the resurgence in communications from the from the anti-vax lobby i mean farmers always had some you know a, a, a colorful you know rep you know rep, reputation and you know in recent years we've had constant accusations in the lay press of hiking of drug prices and things like patient evergreening and that really probably isn't helping the cause right now as we try to fight for a vaccine I guess, okay, everyone's entitled to their, their personal beliefs, but I think more than ever, we need absolute confidence that the pharmaceutical industry will continue to put safety and, well, reactogenicity first in the race to produce an effective COVID-19 vaccine mm-hmm. or vaccines, because there's lots and lots of that are in development right now. And I think Pharma is already doing a pretty good job of managing that perceived safety trade-off for speed to market. And I'm very reassured in, in the press with the actions of people like Emma Walmsley at GSK, who have been you know, standing up and making it very, very clear that the industry will never cross the red lines regarding safety, you know, wherever the, the pressure may, may come from. And that's going to be a really very difficult balancing act for you know for everyone. So right now, I think they just need to be you know really think you know reputation first because it could backfire so easily, mm. and that for me is really the biggest thing that you know we need to be thinking about at the moment. And you touched on it just now, and it leads me nicely into my next question. What communication challenges will pharma face once vaccines are approved and become available? And, and how can these be tackled now proactively or, or when it happens, I guess? Well, I assume if they actually get the, the, the safety part, part of it, you know, right. I mean, that's that's right of entry. Um, and I think a, a great thing about Cineos, um as, as a group is that we're intimately involved in supporting COVID research in our clinical research group. So we've got a pretty solid view of the challenges that are, are, are going to be faced. But, you know, just personally from 
you know, my own perspective, the thing I'm most worried about is about supply and demand. And I think it goes without saying that, okay, the demand for an effective vaccine is going to be universal across the entire globe. But I think, well, timely supply of an effective vaccine won't be. So not everybody will get everything all in one go across the, across the, the, the whole globe. And it's also going to be really unlikely that any two vaccines are going to be equally safe and effective. And whilst I'm no economist... This means that you're going to get stuff happening like black markets forming, and potentially we might have com- you know, well, counterfeit products to contend with too. So as I said earlier, reputation from here on in, and how a you know company performs, behaves, and communicates will you know dictate that reputation. Um, another thing that I've got going on at the back of my mind, and maybe I'm just trying to be over- overly creative. Um, is, okay, I don't want to muddy the waters, but it's not just about pharma. I think countries are going to have to be thinking very carefully about their actions. I mean, could you actually imagine the furore on a world stage if a a particular country prevented the export of a vaccine from an innovator company that was actually domiciled in that market until domestic demand had been fully met? Now, I'm really hoping my vivid imagination, which kind of you know, led to that thought, you know, doesn't come, become a reality because that would be truly awful. That's really interesting. And, and to stay kind of on the topic of COVID-19, it's really interesting to think about the digital learnings and solutions that we've embraced this year and consider what is and isn't going to continue being embraced when we are, if ever, back to normal. So, I have a question for you specifically about the face-to-face side of things. If face-to-face meetings are more permanently replaced with, say, digital interactions, what will be the long-term impact on product launches across all therapy areas? Well, I think the crisis in many ways of COVID has been a great accelerator. I mean, for years, you know, the life science companies in, you know, are being really exploring ways to be, you know, more customer centric through, you know, multi-channel and omni-channel solutions, being more digital, more data-driven, and to really have a their, you know, their non-personal promotional, uh, you know, channels complement the personal promotion. The fact is that the COVID crisis has accelerated changes. We we probably knew we already needed to make. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the critical things here, there's no case study for this situation to take our, gu- our guidance from. And, you know, whenever I, I spend time in, in, you know, in front of, you know, our customers w- within pharma, people take comfort from knowing what others have done. But really, there, there are no case studies to describe what, what you know, you know, this situation. So no matter... You know, how, how you look at it right now, any player in the sector has got two choices to either lead change, you know, take a few risks, in fact, probably quite a lot of risks, and actually define a new normal or just see what others do and forever play a catch up and try to be a fast follower. But that everything moves so f- quickly now that nobody will ever ca- catch up. So I think it's definitely time to try and, you know, hit a kind of digital reset button in terms of the way that the life science industries and pharma in particular actually use their, you know, their uh, digital uh, w- within their businesses. 
Physicians are always going to require the most up-to-date product information to make sure any given you know intervention, be it a, a drug or a device, um, um, you know, know exactly where, where, where they need, need to you know use it. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the strangest things that we've actually seen from some of our in, internal data, because we've got you know sales forces ourselves that we syndicate out. Uh, to farmer is that will face-to-face interactions have actually declined uh, something really peculiar has happened the average call length or the amount of time a salesperson actually spends either remotely or face-to-face in a distance manner in front of a, uh, a customer has actually gone up uh, mm-hmm. massively um, and, you know, if you look at some markets where, you know, typically you would have said, you know, a call could be anything between, you know, you know four to ten minutes, you know, on, on, a, on a good day. We've been seeing, you know, averages in some markets, of, you know, approaching half an hour, wow. which is just just crazy. And, and I really didn't didn't see see that one coming. The, the catch with this is that, you know, reps and, you know, ex-reps like me, we've all historically been trained to talk in sound bites. To respect a, a short call length, but this new normal approximates to a call length, which is more like the dialogue that a medical and scientific liaison staff uh, might actually have with, with a customer. And so, if you think about that shift, even though it's just it seems like a relatively small one, the consequences are huge. And at a very simplistic level, if you look at things like you know sales materials, maybe they're too short and they're lacking depth right now to have these. You know, longer, more you know, in-depth conversations with, mm. with a customer. So, you know, from my perspective, you know, the right model for now needs to be more data-driven. Yeah, definitely more digital. Uh, but I think it still will need to leverage the you know intimacy with a customer that only a field professional can actually bring. And I guess the real secret is deciding what can be automated and what can't. And, you know, we've got some fairly clear thoughts on this within the Cineos group. And at a very basic level, we would say that, you know, some of the best targeting of a field professional's time is towards things like collaborative problem solving and relationship building. And if you're bandwidth limited and you can't get in front of customers and you've got a smaller, you know, sales force, you know, everything else, which isn't one of these high value interactions, is probably fair game for automation. But the catch with all of this is that as long as the customer sees it as one integrated experience, then we've probably done our job well. But if they don't see it as one experience and it's fragmented, then I, I, I don't really see that it's it's actually you know going to work. So these are just a, a few of the things that we we've, we've been uh, you know noticing, and hopefully it gives you a, a little bit of a flavour for uh, you know how launches are going to be Im- impacted over mm. the coming years as we go digital first. Absolutely. Very insightful. Thank you. And, and I've got one last question for you, Ian, and it's my favourite one, I have to say. So when you reflect back on your very full and wide-ranging career so far, are there any moments that stand out to you as your proudest moments? Yes, there is one specific thing. Uh, somebody's asked me a very similar question before, and I, and it's and the answer will be exactly the same as the, the last time that I actually discussed it. And it, it's actually quite personal. Um, um, 
it, and it's to do with my myself, my wife, and the kids, and mm-hmm. and work, and how it all bolts together. And at uh, an NCT class about six and a half years ago, our first child, uh, you know, Harriet was was en route. And at these classes, they they ask you all sorts of you know weird and wonderful you know questions in order to you know prepare you for for parenthood. And we were asked one key question in almost like what looked like group therapy. And the question was, what kind of parent do you want to be? Which is a very big question. Mm-hmm. And Catherine and I both worked in comms for a number of years, and we were good at coming up with short answers to things fairly quickly. And on this particular occasion, we said exactly the same word simultaneously. And we just went, present. Mm. You know, okay. So that was a big thing to live, live up to. Uh, and fast forward from there, three years, and I was on a major guilt trip because I didn't think I'd really lived up to that promise. My average work week at the time meant that I was probably spending more time over the Atlantic than I did with the kids. And they were really growing up very fast and I was horribly aware that I was actually missing out. Mm. So I decided to do something about it and I went to work for myself. I was living in the UK, but I was remotely working uh, for a pharma company in California doing commercial strategy work. Um, the eight-hour time difference, whilst it sounds actually completely and utterly crazy, was actually really helpful because mm-hmm. it helped me to be present for simple things like breakfast and my client was understanding enough so I could take a break to do things like read bedtime stories before getting back into the inevitable evening meetings. Mm-hmm. My productivity actually went up dramatically and I stopped missing out quite as much. And whilst I did still need to travel now and again, uh, when I was there, I was really there. I wasn't, uh, you know, constantly, you know, playing with, with an iPhone and trying to re- re- read a bedtime story or, or doing the, you know, the, the bath thing. And, you know, this is something I'm actually really proud of. Now, as the kids are now both at school, you know, um, you know, my wife and I decided it would be a really good time, you know, for us to, to go back to work, you know, work again a bit more conventionally. And, you know, I wanted to go back to work with, a you know, a larger office-based team again. And, you know, Sineos ticked all my boxes in terms of a great place, you know, to work. Now, unfortunately, as we're all aware, and, you know, going back to the start of our conversation today, uh, COVID has actually meant that I haven't actually been into an office uh, yet, other than a deserted one, uh, in order to actually look what it was like with, with, look like what it was like with a mask on. But I'm, you know, really hopeful that that's going to happen in the not too distant future. So I can actually meet my colleagues, you know, face to face. Yeah. Yeah. Zoom and Teams have been absolutely transformative in terms of, you know, helping us make these, you know, big leaps. And, you know, I've got a, you know, an office just at the bottom of the garden in a bit, bit of the garage. I kind of expected that in May I'd be leaving it but it kind of hasn't happened. But it did mean that I was well prepared to uh, be able to w- work from home. So I guess I'm lucky in that respect. But, you know, being around at those uh, you know early years with the kids, that was mm-hmm. a big thing for me. It was a big thing for our entire family. And if that's the one thing I'm to be proudest of, I'm very proud of that. 
I love that. And and one thing that I kind of took away from that, Ian, as you were talking, it kind of really resonated with me is that being present does not necessarily always mean the amount of times that you're around and physically there, but it's about when you are there, which might not be that frequent, to really fully be present and not be distracted and just be there. Um, is, is that a right way of interpreting it? Yeah, I think that if you work in your kitchen and you've got a, a laptop and an iPad out on a you know the kitchen table, it's mm. difficult to to walk away. And every time you you know hear that ding, it's like a, you know a rat hitting a feeder bar. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just not good. You need to enforce some boundaries and actually you know really be there. And these boundaries right now have become so blurred between home and work because it's the same thing now and so you need to artificially impose something and if that means that it hits whatever time in the day and okay I'm probably still the worst person in the world at this where you know you should shut the laptop stick it in a drawer don't leave it dinging away and do exactly the same with the with the phone and they have that wonderful mode on them which allows you to say sleep and you won't get any any messages and you just need to be there for your family then because you're kind of there but you're almost like a little bit of a, a, a zombie mm. if you're just you know w- you know waiting for you know for the next uh, for email and being always on is just not healthy from my perspective but again um, once you practice what one preaches i try my best but i'm not completely uh, innocent in that regard I'm with you on that one. I'll share that with you. Definitely not the best person at that either, but a great way to end this. And thank you again for sharing that last note with us. Very, very heartwarming. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time, Ian, and for sharing your insights uh, and how the industry should be communicating during these uncertain times and periods, I guess. Um, so thank you very much. My pleasure. Lovely to talk. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to welcoming you again next week for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Stay safe.